So I want to follow up a little bit on one of the things James was talking about last night when he read that poem about let's face what the deal is here in this world. And of course the way, uh, I guess the Buddha would describe the deal is the first noble truth, the noble truth of dukkha. And I wanna talk about that a little, hopefully in a way that helps us understand it, not in a way that bums us out. That could happen too. As you know, the Buddha talked about the truth, the Four Noble Truths, the truth of dukkha is to be understood, really understood, not intellectually, but in ourselves. The truth of tanha, craving, the origin of suffering of dukkha is to be abandoned. The the truth of um, nibbana, of the ending, the cessation of craving, of confusion, that the heart and mind of non-clinging is to be realized. And the fourth truth, the path of practice, of awakening, the Eightfold Noble Path is to be developed. So no way I'm going to get through all four tonight. Maybe the first one, maybe. (laughs) Um, But I want to just start by just saying a couple of things that I've mentioned before. But just to remind us again that meditation, a cultivation, bhavana, it's the work of the mind. Our whole path is really the work of the mind. The mind and body work together, of course, but it's the mind, it's the heart where suffering arises, where confusion ceases. And I want to read just a definition for you to think about. I am in no way claiming this is the ultimate definition. I'm just throwing a couple of ideas out. Not think about, okay, not think about. But just let them rumble around in there, or not. Andy Olensky, who's the director of the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, and he's also a Pali and Sanskrit scholar, and he gave as his definition, he's talking about the dynamic nature of mind, of the mind, our mind. And he says, in Buddhism... The mind is not a subject that has objects. There's not some steady-state subject that has objects as content, but is rather the activity or process of cognizing a flow of events. That's the main point. The mind is an activity, a process, cognizing a flow of events. No thing, no steady-state. And yet meditation is the work of the mind of recognizing and understanding how the mind works, how suffering arises, how suffering dissipates in the mind. And so the third thing I'm just throwing out as, as an interesting observation, again, I'm not just throwing it out as an interesting observation. I heard, I was listening to a talk of Joseph Goldstein's recently, and he, in this talk, was mentioning something that his teacher and one of my teachers, Sada Upandita, said to him 25 years ago. And it had such an effect, he was remembering it again, just as such a, such a non-provisional statement. It was. And so what Sada said that Joseph was remembering, that I'm telling you third hand, um, was that 100% of our suffering is caused by kalesa in the mind. 100%. That's what makes it kind of go, hmm. 
hmm, not just, oh yeah, I get it, greed, hatred, delusion, they're not, they're not so great, they cause problems. 100%. So just throwing that out there, see how it lands in the activity that is mind. Because that, in that, it really makes it clear, if that's so, or if we even contemplate in that way, that suffering is clearly not being called the same thing as difficult experience. Suffering is not being caused the same thing as, you know, old age, disease, and death, just for example. Because that's not just caused by Kalesa in our mind. That's just, as that poem James read last night, that's what the deal is. Birth, being with what we love, being separated from what we love, having to be together with what we don't love. This is actually in the definition of dukkha in the suttas. Old age, disease, death. But so I want to talk about then this first noble truth, the truth of dukkha. Because personally, I mean, it's a very many levels. I think it's really profound to explore experientially as a truth, which can be reflecting, contemplating to some extent, but then really using it as a sense to look in our own experience, to be understood. Because remember, whatever, in my understanding, whatever the Buddha taught, certainly in my experience, limited as it is, was with the intention of what can free our hearts and minds from suffering. He wasn't just teaching for philosophical information or because he liked to, you know, have disputes with the million, you know, philosophical guys and women wandering around India who loved to have philosophical disputes at that time. So if he, out of everything he knew, and he, was, he often said, you know, pick up a handful of leaves and say, oh, bhikkhus, which is more, the leaves in my hand or all the leaves in the forest? So that's a duh question, right? And they would say, oh, yes, Lord, you know, the leaves in the forest are so much more, yeah. And uh, he said, very good. No, no, he said, what I, what I know, what I know, with a, this, this mind of a Buddha, is as to the leaves in the forest, but what I teach is as to the leaves in my hand, but that's all you need to free your hearts and minds. So what he picked, one has to... Uh, assume, or one does, or I do, okay, assume, he picked what he thought would be useful. The Four Noble Truths, as Sally said the other night, that was his first teaching. And the first truth, what do we need to understand to free our hearts and minds, the truth of dukkha? And so, just to share some thoughts about it. First, just to start with a translation. So often, Dukkha is translated into English as suffering. And certainly that must have some accuracy because, you know, the, the really great translators translate it that way. But in terms of the meaning of it and what suffering as a word connotes or brings up in the mind of an English speaker, and of course I don't really know how it's translated in other languages, so, so I can only say this in English. But for me, and I know I'm not the only one, when I hear suffering, some quality of aversion in the mind isn't too far behind. <laughs> I don't hear suffering as in, in a neutral way, really. 
right? It has connotations. It ain't good. You know, oh, suffering, right? The, and the whole rap that Buddha's a really downhead philosophy religion because it teaches life is suffering. And if you translate dukkha as suffering, that is what the first noble truth is saying. But it's, it's really so important and so clear. See, the first noble truth, life is not about cultivating aversion in our minds. We never wanted to cultivate aversion because that's a function of delusion. That's exactly suffering. And by suffering, I mean suffering. So the word dukkha, as many of you have read the book of Analayo and the Satipatthana Sutta, and he goes into the translation of the word dukkha, which I quite liked. It just really speaks to me as being more accurate and useful. And that's really my bottom line is useful. What helps us see the truth? We know we're recognizing accurately when our heart and mind is, even for a moment, released from, from confusion, from delusion. So one of his um, breakdowns of the word dukkha is he takes the prefix du, de, as difficulty, and ka as meaning axle hole. And he relates it to bullock carts, which have these big wooden wheels and a little hole that the axle goes through. And he said, basically, the axle doesn't properly fit the hole, and so there's always friction. There's always some difficulty. There's always some rubbing. I think that's a great description, definition, of dukkha, of the first noble truth. And just to completely sidetrack, I will say that three weeks ago, actually, I was riding in a bullock cart drawn by oxen. And there are so many ways <laughs> that there's friction <laughs> that it's uncomfortable. I can't even begin to tell you. <laughs> we were in some little village way in, in, uh, in the north of, north of Mandalay with the Sayada Uindika, where several of us had gone with him to offer some, well, we were beginning offering some, some Donna support. We, uh, we, being six of us who are stand-ins for all of the many, many friends in in the States, in Europe, in Australia, and in Burma, who have just offered Donna to offer to, to various nunneries, to poor villagers, to just different places that we could. And it was really a fun thing to be the representatives to be able to offer that. So we went with Saida to his village. And why did we pick his village over all the others? Just because if you, the Sayadaws come to Yangon, but if they get well known, they're like really responsible for their village because the government basically does nothing. And so a Sayada, a teacher who's come and has his own center in Rangoon is sort of like, you know, the local boy made good. So when he goes back, he really does a lot to bring in support to these villages. So this village, as most, had no electricity at all. And we um, were able to offer some solar panels which uh, gave solar electricity so all the streets have lights, which they didn't before at all, and the school could have electric lights so they could actually study at night, which is great. And just, it's just so different because the roads are just dust, dust, a lot of dust. And uh, in terms of why lights are good, something maybe I never thought of, they said, several people said it's so great because now we can walk at night without being afraid of being bitten by vipers. <laughs> and you're bitten by a viper, you die, if you don't immediately have access to the serum. So it's not a small thing. 
So anyway, we were visiting there, um, and we did some other things there. And I think Sayadaw thought in between all the meetings, he had to either entertain us or get us out of the way. I'm not sure which. So he organized, he told us basically we were to go on these bullet cart rides to see some watermelon fields. <laughs> this was like a 45-minute ride over not even roads. And the roads are, I'm not kidding, like, you know, six inches thick with dust. There's no such thing as pavement. But these are like deeply rutted, huge boulders, jutted roads through the fields to this watermelon patch. (laughs) (laughs) So they, you know, put us in the back of these bullock carts, which they don't have springs, you know. (laughs) And um, I think my cough now is really the result of the two bushels of dust that I inhaled <laughs> on that ride. I'm not actually exaggerating. <laughs> and there's like so many ways that you could say, I, I see what dukkha means in relationship. <laughs> it just is not really a smooth experience. And there's some beautiful stuff. I mean, the watermelon feels okay, but <laughs> passing through all the farms and kind of being out in nature, that was kind of nice. Watching the people look at us, oh yeah, look at all the, the white people going through in the bullet cart, you know, and it felt like an idiot. Um, and that was another part. And then, you know, we get out there and we were with nuns, and it was like 45 minutes away. The nuns have to eat their meal by really be done by noon, start usually the meals at 10.30. By the time we got out there, it was 11.30. You know, and we're saying, the nuns, the nuns have to eat. The bullock cart guys unhitched, unhitched the bullocks and wandered off somewhere. And so we just said, okay, we just start walking back. Turns out, if we went along the river, which was a beautiful walk, we could get back in 10 minutes. <laughs> like, okay. What was this all about? (laughs) So I think he did just want to get us the heck out of there. (laughs) Who knows what was going on? You never really know what's going on over there. Anyway, so that was a side, little side thing. But I really feel I have a deep sense of dukkha as a word for the friction, the unsatisfactory nature of a bullock cart axle pull. Difficulty uneasiness, or as Bhikkhu Bodhi describes it, the basic unsatisfactoriness that runs through our lives. doesn't mean every moment. Or as Ruth Dennison used to say, it's the little leak in the canoe, Dobby. <laughs> Just when you think it, everything's going fine. So, insecurity, unsatisfactory, unreliable. So this is, I think, in a broader way, uh, a more, to me, useful and pertinent definition of dukkha as the first noble truth. And as you know, of course, it includes that list of things that are difficult, physically difficult, dukkha dukkha, as it's actually described, the actual unpleasant, painful experiences, that these are part of life. The first noble truth isn't saying this is all of life but saying, yes, this is part of life. And I think that's what James was talking about last night, that in our not deeply understanding that this is just how it is. Difficult stuff happens. Painful stuff happens to everybody. It's not some mistake, 
some cosmic mistake that somehow slipped in, you know. And on an intellectual level, of course, we understand that, but somehow deep within there's that resistance and what James was talking about and the sense of being humbled, but more towards the end when he talks about me really in that moment of just pure accepting presence. Oh yes, this is how it is. Take something simple like a knee pain. All the stuff the mind goes through in resistance and reaction and how to fix it and going to the hospital and pretending we're accepting and all that stuff. You know all that stuff. And then there's the moment which we cannot do by will because will is wanting and wisdom does not come from wanting. In that moment of, I give up because there's nowhere to go to get away from this. So let's just really be here. In that moment, the suffering, and I'm using suffering as distinct from dukkha, right? The suffering that's in the mind and the heart of resistance goes. The pain can still be there. Absolutely, it can be. And sometimes, though, and quite interestingly, and I've had this experience, I actually cannot name it as pain. Just this last um, retreat I was sitting in, in Burma, once in a while I get really severe headaches. They're like migraines, but I don't, I don't think they're classical migraines. But anyway, middle of the night, like midnight, I wake up with one. And uh, in a pretty equanimous space, so you know, looking at it, and the mind starts, ah, oh, is it another three-day job? Uh, okay. You know, and I just took, took a, an aspirin, and I was just lying there. And I was, because it was the middle of the night, I wasn't trying to do anything, to meditate or anything. I was just really quite wakeful. And in, in, I was in the process of just uh, awareness, noticing whatever's happening, and more interested in the awareness than in what's happening, which is the basic practice. And there was a point, the mind wasn't really in resistance, but it was, you know, clearly me having a headache and noticing that. There was really a point which surprised me because I really wasn't trying or even thinking about it at all, just being there. When the sense of watching headache just completely went away and there was just the pure experience of sensation, I was aware, you know, I had been calling that headache. It was intense. I absolutely, and I was looking for it, I could not find pain. I couldn't find pain. And I'd never had it in that way before. I've had plenty of times where the mind was really equanimous around it, plenty of times when it wasn't, too. I don't just, you know, so you know. I'm not trying to say, oh, la, 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 migraine, la, la, la. I'm not saying that. But I've worked with it a lot. And there's plenty of times when it's really intense, and by summoning up a real uh, resolution, I can really be there with it, go into it with, with uh, some some uh, concentration, some presence, and really be it, just see it as sensation. There's an energy in that, a kind of, yes, you know, I can do it. This wasn't like that at all. I wasn't trying to do anything. There wasn't any efforting at all. Just this sense of awareness, the object was sensation. Didn't really matter what the object is, it's just the awareness of it. I absolutely couldn't call it pain. I thought, well, that's really interesting. And it's really interesting in that what that strengthened, of course, again, is the confidence, the trust in the natural freedom that is awareness. Awareness isn't in pain. Awareness can be with anything. Awareness doesn't suffer. And just the natural uh, strength and the confidence in the accessibility of that. 
of course there was momentum. I'd been practicing for a few weeks. That's why we're always going on about just holding the possibility of continuity. That doesn't mean you're continuous every moment, but that willingness to just mean what's happening now. Awareness of whatever. The mind is knowing. Awareness knows what the mind is knowing, and that's happening now. The, the mind knowing happens naturally. Seeing, hearing, smelling, touching, thinking. You know, if you, the mind knows it, that's consciousness. There's a sound. If your ears work, you're hearing it. Unless you're completely on Mars at the moment. And then you don't know what I said, and you don't know the sound, because it's totally elsewhere. But that happens. You don't have to think ahead of time. I've got to be ready in case a sound comes so there can be hearing of it. <laughs> Do you? You don't have to sit down and think, okay, let me gather my attention so I can be here for the next breath. I mean, no. I mean, you might do that. You don't need to. The breath comes. We're present. Duh, we notice it. And and in fact, we never know what's going to come next, do we? So it's more helpful to just be here with this and let whatever comes next come next than gather all our sources so I can meet that knee pain in this next sitting. Then you sit down. Where is it? Come on. I'm ready. Come on. Where is it? Okay, this is totally sidetracking here. Um, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> what was I talking about? Um, dukkha, dukkha. Right. So absolutely part of the first noble truth is that there's difficult, painful things happen. That's just how it is. Okay. Second aspect, of course, and again, James talked about this last night, is that of the, uh, the constant change, the unreliability in terms of the constant change of experience. And that, again, in the broader way, we would all agree intellectually. Again, the fact of birth and death and whatever my situation is now, we know it'll change intellectually. Whatever mood I'm in now, we know it'll change, right? Right? When that strong, unpleasant mood comes, isn't it? Oh, yes, well, this is a mood, and I know once the mood, if it can come, I know it will go. Right? You're completely free within it. Correct? No, we're not. It comes. It's like, oh, my God, I can't bear it. It goes. Thank God. I worked through that one now. (laughs) It comes back again, and then we take that as a sign we did something wrong. And that's right there, not understanding the first noble truth. The third aspect being the, well, there's the changing aspect, the unreliability, the nothing that's graspable. And that is really the aspect that's so unsatisfying because the habit of mind is to want something to grasp, to hold on to, to be steady. Even though that keeps creating our suffering, that's the habit of mind. And there's no um, this sense of the constant flux. And the bigger, as I said, in the broader picture, even a mood, that's a broader picture. The situation you're in, your health, your life, people you know, your life situation, those are broad situations. Within those, though, we think we see how it changes, but we don't tend to notice at times that the situation's changing constantly. Not just, it's like, it's the same, it's the same, it's the same, and then it changes, and we grieve, and we think, well, what made it change? Something's wrong. 
if we liked it. If it, we don't like it, we think, why doesn't it change? Something's wrong. But really, this, this aspect of dukkha is really the aspect that Stephen Batchelor is so fond of calling these days contingency. The fact that there is no core experience entity to which things are happening, but which is staying the same anywhere, anytime. He likes, Stephen Batchelor likes to say in his latest talks and book that he described, now this is Stephen describing it, okay, so I'm using it for this talk, I, just his opinion though, that the Buddha's awakening was to the absoluteness of this fact of contingency. I looked up contingency in the, in the Oxford Dictionary, and they only had contingent, which they said occurring something something is occurring or existing only if certain other circumstances are the case. Like something only can occur or exist dependent on other circumstances occurring or existing. So, dukkha is basically saying that's the case with everything. Every moment of experience that we experience is occurring because of all kinds of causes and conditions that come together in this moment and this arises. That's that yata bhuta, things as they have come to be in this moment. And then changes. Nothing staying steady stays. So every moment is a new moment, new causes and conditions, new contingency, changing, 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 every moment, you know? Our mind can't really get around it. Thought can't get around it. Thought's too, as fast as thought is, it's too slow. It's too caught in views, in explanation. I mean, words are so limiting. But when we really, and for a moment, I'm sure all of you at different times have had a moment where there's that, that friction of fighting that contingency drops away. And that's the friction of dukkha. Something in the mind is fighting that, constant changing. Like, oh, now it's like this. Let me figure out what all the conditions are, and then I can make it happen and stay like this, right? Don't we do that? As if it's possible. How can it be possible? How often have you, have, have you thought or said, oh, here's that anger again. I know this really well. Here's that knee pain again. I know it. No way. Is anything happening again? The mind isn't even the same. Every moment the mind is different. The suffering in the mind, as the Buddha says, comes when there's greed or aversion or confusion in the mind. That sensation we're calling knee pain is a different sensation from the last moment. And the mind that knows it, the qualities in that knowing moment of consciousness, could be completely different from the last moment that similar knee pain arose. Completely different, which is really, thank God, because that's why we can be really caught in something one moment and really experience freedom the next. And reverse is also true. But it's like we don't have to despair. You can if you want, but we don't have to despair because nothing's steady state. And the mind that wants it, okay, that's the friction. But those moments when it's just... Wow, it's just like this, and you're not referencing past or future, you're not fighting with anything. Those are so 
alive, aren't they? So peaceful. Rather than looking for how to make it happen again, turn back and notice what the quality of mind feels like then, what the quality of awareness feels like. We talk about noticing when there's greed, when there's confusion, when there's aversion, noticing those qualities, because then we can't rely on what the mind's telling us when those are there. We can't. And you can feel, we can learn to recognize the suffering, restrictive, constrictive quality in mind and often in the body when those qualities are in the mind. But our meditation practice isn't just about noticing that. You may think that is all we talk about, but it's not. It's also, and even more, noticing what the wholesome, the kusala mind feels like. Noticing what it feels like when there's not, when greed vanishes, when that friction isn't there. Instead of just like, oh, thank God, I'm on a, you know. Okay, you can have a minute like that. But then notice. I remember one, one friend described as the awareness or the knowing mind just feels kind of, she said, squeaky clean. You know, just kind of, shh, nothing in the way. And then, wow, I'm having such a squeaky clean moment. And you can feel the constriction come in. No blame, no problem. Feel the constriction come in. The Buddha said, greed, hatred, delusion are makers of measurement in the mind. So we're here to just learn how it works. Learn what the mind feels like when it's pure. Learn what it feels like when it's not. Learn if it's true, you know. Is it true that the cause of suffering, and I don't mean dukkha, I mean suffering, in our mind is when there's greed and we don't see it, when there's aversion and we don't see it, when there's delusion and that's even harder to see. But one main way you know delusion is when somehow it's all referring back here. It's all about me. It's all about me. That's a pretty good sign. There's some delusion going on. So the other, I'm on the first page here. I told you, there's no way I'd get through all four noble truths. I'm not even getting through dukkha. Okay, so, and the third way dukkha's talked about is just the ongoing, ongoing nature of it. When there's that friction, you know, when there's that friction. Just things don't quite work, but we keep on trying to make it work. And just notice, with interest, not if you're in a real depressive mode, then it's not so helpful. But when you're just interested in how does this work, notice as you go through the day, just notice that there's a, was a kind of um, meditation technique in Thailand I'd read about, I haven't done it, which the, the Ajahn would just tell people to just sit or walk, notice when you move, why you move. What motivated the intention in your mind to move? And it's almost always some form of unpleasant experience. The body's a little uncomfortable, or you need to pee, or you itch, or your mind gets restless and bored, or you're hungry, or you hurt, you know. You walk, why do you stop walking? Here, here the bell rings, you know, okay. If we didn't have bells and we just said sit, sit till you get up, walk till you stop, and just notice why. Notice how much when we're going through the day, even here, the mind, and I really was seeing this a lot this last month, in very subtle ways, I think I mentioned, the mind's just looking for something a little, some little pleasant something, 
anything, you know. And it could be looking and trying to make experience a little clearer because my mind decided clearer is better, so it was pleasant only because my mind decided that and matched my view. Or I was walking back and forth and there was one flowering bush I would always pass and sometimes the smell of it, it was lovely, sometimes the smell would waft over and I would like look forward to that, right? What? So I could walk through this smell and then it's gone. That's samsara. A pleasant moment, just gone like that. We're looking forward to it. We're holding on to it. We're mourning that it's over. We're looking for another one. We're resisting the unpleasant, the neutral. We need to find something a little more umphy than neutral. That's dukkha. That's the unsatisfactory nature of life. And I had this, this that's really samsara. That's what keeps it going, that, that wanting just to somehow make it a little bit better. And even when we think we really know, you know, like I knew walking back and forth, there was no point to stop and go sit as if that would matter. And I could see my mind doing this, and I knew to just keep going. And I, I thought, okay, I'm really aware of all of this. And then this one day, this was great, kind of cut it for me. I was noticing, just as I said, but just kind of feeling, oh, but you're just getting in a depressive down kind of mode. You're just noticing your sensations in your feet. You're always looking down, and you know, it's just, you're just feeding subtle, subtle aversion. And you know it's all about opening to kusala, to the beautiful, you should look up more, you should, you know. And I was couching that in terms of skillful means, but not seeing just the subtle. And it was pretty subtle, just wanting it to be more pleasant. So I said, okay, just look up and out. And as it happened, I was walking in this one place outside uh, on a path. Just, and I wasn't even aware, but just at the very end of the path, there was a little overhang from the building. It was right next to a building. And that's where I happened to decide to look up. So I look up. That overhang was just filled with old disgusting cobwebs and dead bugs and mold and mildew hanging out. It was the most disgusting thing. And I thought, oh, okay. It totally cracked me up. That's right. This is samsara. Samsara doesn't get better. We're not here to fix samsara. That's like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. That's when you get it right. Just, and that broke it. You know. So dukkha is not really seeing that. <laughs> so I wanted to talk about a, a couple of ways, and I'm sure there's many more you can discover for yourselves, but, but two ways that I've seen a lot in myself and in others of ways that as we begin to open to the truth of dukkha, that we can, we're starting to understand it, but it gets a little sidetracked or we get confused. And so first, of course, the obvious is just the denial of it, you know, and the, just the looking for pleasant and hating unpleasant. And that James talked about and that maybe we'll talk about more, but that's the obvious one. But another one that happens, and it can happen on retreats, on longer retreats, and it can, it can be a phase in life where we do start to actually we say we're coming out of the denial, out of the avoidance of unpleasant, out of the fact that there shouldn't be unpleasant, you know, and if there is, we just block. We start to open to it. And then we start to see, actually, there's quite a lot of unsatisfactory qualities, the, the endings of things, the impermanence in life. And it can start to become a lens that colors everything. 
can, I used to call it a dukkha phase. It can be in retreat, it can be in life. But it's, it's as if all you see is either suffering, and I mean suffering now, or when something beautiful starts, you go, well, what's the point? It's just going to end, you know? Because dukkha doesn't just mean unpleasant. There's one sutta, where actually Sariputta is describing to the Buddha his, his full awakening as an arhat. It goes through a lot of different things. But in one place, he's talking about really seeing that all feeling, all vedana, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, it all arises, it all ceases. There's nothing there to hold to. There's nothing there to give any lasting satisfaction. And therefore, his mind has become disenchanted, has turned away from looking to feeling for happiness, for ease, for any confirmation. And the Buddha says, yes, all feeling is included in dukkha. And I just want to put that out, because sometimes people think, oh, well, dukkha means everything's negative, and what about beautiful stuff? All feeling is included in dukkha, pleasant feeling. So dukkha doesn't mean suffering, but it means unreliable, insubstantial, isn't going to last. And it's important, though, to recognize that there is still pleasant, and it's still beautiful, and there's still pleasure from it. So what can happen in these dukkha phases is we start to, to bat that away, to deny that. You go, yeah, there's pleasant, yeah, it's beautiful, but so what? It's just going to go away, so to heck with it, you know? And no point in appreciating the beauty, it's all just a, a phony, a fake. And I, I went through phases like that, and at times I, I, I falsely thought it was a real sign of cleverness, you know? Maybe that's a New York thing, being so cynical. But I really thought, oh, yes, well, there's nothing to rely on. It's all dukkha. And I would see two people starting a relationship. I remember one time, years ago at IMS, these two staff people were starting a relationship. They were walking down the driveway holding hands. And I thought, I give them six months. <laughs> that, I think they're still together, like 20 years later. It shows what I knew. But that attitude, you know, I'm kind of... So that I was at least a little laughing, but it's, it's, it's twisted. <laughs> but what can happen even more is that one gets lost in a kind of a depression, a kind of a negativity, a kind of a fear, kind of a real pushing away of life. That is not understanding the truth of dukkha. And there's a sutta. This is, this is a little intense, but this is a sutta um, from the Buddhist time um, where... I'll just paraphrase it, where he, the Buddha, was giving a talk to some monks, uh, and he was praising as a concentration practice the asubha practices. Asubha means the non-beautiful. It's often translated as foulness, but it's a form of practice where one contemplates either cemetery, decaying bodies, the unbeautiful nature of the body, and it's often given as a way to counteract someone who's really caught in lust, particularly lust for someone else's body, lust for their own body, but really caught in lust. So it's meant as an evening to see there's beautiful, you can't rely on it. But he taught this to a whole group of monks, and this is one of the rare suttas where it looks like the Buddha made a mistake. And then he taught it, and then he went off and said, I'm going off to meditate for half a month. Please don't disturb me with anything. And during that month, these monks went off and they said, well, he was praising this, so let's really concentrate on foulness. Let's really cultivate that. And they got so depressed 
they got so negative that actually a bunch of them killed themselves. So that's not what he meant, you know, <laughs> not what he meant. And at the end, I mean, after that, of course, when he came out of his, um, when he came out of his uh, uh, meditation, his retreat, Ananda went and told him, you know, hey, hey, this is what's happening. It's not so good, you know. They, uh, they got humiliated, disgusted, repelled, really lost in negativity. So then the Buddha went and gave a talk, and you'll like this, on talking about concentration. So this is as a, as a concentration practice, by mindfulness of breathing. So I'll just read this for those of you who are doing mindfulness of breathing. When developed and cultivated, this concentration by mindfulness of breathing is peaceful and sublime, an ambrosial pleasant dwelling, and it disperses and quells right on the spot evil unwholesome states whenever they arise. So this sense of really getting lost, really getting depressed, if that starts to happen, no, it it is, you know, an effective practice, but that's not understanding the first noble truth. And bring in simply mindfulness to the depression, to the unpleasant. You don't have to, like, try and fight it away or talk yourself out of it. But you don't have to keep believing it. You don't have to like buy all those stories of, oh, yeah, the beautiful, forget about it, it's nothing. Feel that sense of sorrow or the sense of disgust or the sense of betrayal or whatever the heck you're feeling. And the steadiness of awareness, the steadiness of mindfulness is really what purifies and changes things. When we're meeting disgust with disgust, all that we're cultivating is disgust, right? So if we meet a version with, oh, this is really bad, I'm doing it wrong, what's the mind that's noticing filled with? Aversion. Turn around and notice, oh, aversion feels like this. Depression feels like this. I'm not saying it's, oh, wow, great, fireworks, depression feels like this. No, it still feels like depression. But we make the shift, and that's what we're practicing here, from identification, interest, entrancement with what's happening. The object, whether it's a mental object, a physical object, a situation, we shift our interest from that confirming me or causing me torment or being the cause of my happiness or suffering to just noticing the nature of of mindfulness, awareness, the mind itself. And when we meet unpleasant with mindfulness, we're actually, that is what's changing the habit. Trying to, you know, get rid of aversion with aversion is keeping up the habit. Or trying to get rid of aversion with greed, that's the other thing we do, is just changing habits. But just looking, meeting, oh, aversion is like this. Deep sadness is like this. I know it's not easy. I know it's not steady state, and I know we get lost. That's all okay. But this sense of knowing that freedom and suffering is in the mind, our practice, our habit, is really learning to recognize the mind, how it is when there's suffering, how it is when there's not, and learning to trust that more and more. Our habit is so much to give all the power to what's happening. I'm unhappy because if we know it's not because of that other person's behavior in the hall, maybe we're to that. They're making a heck of a racket. 
but I know my suffering is because of my aversion. But then there we say, but I'm suffering because, because I don't like it, because I have this, I have this past history, I should be different, yada, 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 and I'm suffering because that's happening. And we really come back and say, it's possible for that to be happening. It's even possible to notice aversion as the next object of attention. And the mind in that moment, because it's changing every minute, you know, in that moment the mind itself is not observing with aversion. This is really possible. And this is where the habits are changing. The habit of feeding aversion and also the habit of giving all the power to experience. You can almost say that freedom of heart and mind is freedom from experience in a way. Freedom from identifying with experience. So that's one way that um, we misunderstand or can get lost with dukkha. Another way, for another way it manifests, not understanding it, and i just say a little about this, is I really think a lot of our getting lost in self-judgment. Does anyone here, has anyone here ever experienced self-judgment? No, I know. I'm just talking uh, theoretically here. The self-judgment, the self-hatred, the self-blame. Sure, on each person, there are specific psychological and historical personal causes and conditions, right? You have your own particular story. You can look in the past, the way that self-judgment arises in your experience and the stories and the memories that come, the things in your experience that trigger it. And that, those specifics are a little different for everyone. And there's people who don't have that particular um, conditioning and don't experience so much self-judgment. There are. They have other stuff. But I do. (laughs) It's being human, it's called. Being an unenlightened worldling, a putijana, a thickster, as Santikaro uh, translates it. I love that, a thickster. So as in all cases, the personal or particular story is the stand-in for the universal. It's just the nature of things, that the self-judgment, I think, on this level, is a not really understanding the first noble truth. The sense that, does self-judgment come up when pleasant things are happening? When things are going well? Do you get lost in a lot of self-judgment about, you know, how useless you are or you can't meditate? Maybe, in some twisted way, but there would have been an unpleasant thought in your mind. It comes up when something unpleasant is happening right now. Right now. The story could be all about the past or the future. It could be huge anger. It could be just a little niggly, you know, not quite feeling good and you don't even know what. But it's not... First, it's not seeing that when unpleasant arises, aversion just comes as a habit, but it doesn't need to when we just open to the unpleasant and just be with it, just like this. It's okay. But even more, when we believe, and to some extent, a lot of us do believe some of the stories of either our worthlessness or not being good or something's wrong with me or I'm the only one or if I really was a good practitioner, I wouldn't be sick or I would you know, be able to, whatever is it really some, on some level, not getting the truth of dukkha. That somehow, if we get it all right, it's back to this samsara, if we get it all right, 
I wouldn't fail. There's some idea, ideal of perfection, isn't there? When you think about the moment you get completely enlightened, and already the moment we get completely enlightened. I just read a quote from Dogen. You may not necessarily even be aware of your own enlightenment. I love that. I love that. Because I, I had this real sense once when I was at, at Ramana Maharshi's ashram. It's like, I don't get to be aware of recognizing no self. <laughs> you know, That's the whole thing. It's not about me getting to feel how enlightened I am. That's exactly not the case. But so this sense of when you think about what your ideal is, Often, I know for me, it creeps in some sense of perfection. Usually there's no unpleasant going on anywhere. But even if you let unpleasant in, your, your personality has suddenly really morphed, you know, into compassionate, wise. You don't have those kinks, those unpleasant rough spots. You know, they go away. Our memories, the pain from our childhood. Oh, yes, that happened, but it really has no effect. It's just uh, an image coming and going, you know? We have these ideals of perfection that have no basis in reality. Dukkha, the first noble truth. Pain, beauty, neutral. Coming and going, coming and going, coming and going. So when you fail at something, you lost your job, you couldn't follow your breath, you thought you were so calm and you suddenly erupted in anger, This is just nature doing its job. What we're learning is to cultivate mindfulness and let mindfulness doing its job. But just have a look. When you're lost in self-blame, self-hatred, worthlessness, first on the immediate level, see if you can notice what was going on just when that mood started. And really, I've, I've seen for myself now so often, for, I'm very familiar with that mind state. So when it comes, I don't have to go back and explore every nuance of my childhood. I know that happened. That's the story, but it doesn't really matter right now for me because I know it. When we don't know it, sometimes we need to explore it to see the causes and conditions. And then you don't need to explore it anymore. But when it starts, I look, and I would say so far in my experience always, there's been an unpleasant sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, or thought. Because that's all that's ever happening right now, those six sense experiences. So it could be, as I tune in, I, oh, my back's hurting a little bit. I didn't notice it. So there was that unpleasantness. In the not noticing, a little aversion was coming in, just kind of a subtle dis-ease through the body. And the next thing I notice is, oh, all these years I'm meditating and I can't do it right. It's hopeless. Why don't I give it? It's just because I'm getting old. I'll never be able to do it. And it starts like that. Then I can notice it and come in and go, well, I can either keep going with that or I can switch it but keep going with it to switch it to, you should know better than to get lost in, right? (laughs) Notice that. I go, wait a minute. This is just dosa. Dosa is the Pali word for aversion, ill will, hatred. I love to use it because it just makes the big picture instead of getting lost in all the little stories. Oh, this is dosa in the mind. What's happening? Unpleasant physical sensation. Or there's an unpleasant thought. You're sitting there and a memory comes up. That's out of your control. An unpleasant memory. 
is unpleasant and boom, we're off into a world of self-hatred. Not to judge it, but to explore how it works so we don't have to feel a victim of it. And again, when we can meet the self-hatred with that interested awareness, we're shifting the pattern. What arises in a moment, that you could say is, the, is vipaka, the result of previous kama, previous actions of body, speech, and mind. You're sitting here minding your own business and some horrific memory comes up. That's clearly not in your control. You didn't think, in five minutes, I will have this horrible memory. You know, it just comes. That's just vipaka. How we meet it in the moment of its arising is present moment comma, present moment action, present moment intention. So there's that willingness. If first aversion comes and you notice that, okay, it's like this. I just be with it. That is cultivating, that is strengthening the wholesome. That's really a shift from being lost in unwholesome, aversive mind state to, oh, it's like this. If we're still looking to the experience, well, if I'm mindful, it should go away. If I'm mindful, I should feel better. If I'm mindful, it should get pleasant. Well, that's turned to wanting, right? The other side, which I'm not going to have time to talk about, but that's the other side. With the pleasant, we want. But if we're just noticing, okay, it's unpleasant, self-hatred, anger, it's really hard to be with. It is unpleasant, and it feels like this. And this is how anger works. Oh, it's kind of interesting. Let's see how it works. What thoughts feed it? What thoughts lessen it? How does it get stronger? How does it get weaker? You're not thinking those things. You're just being with it. Those moments, and you can go back and forth between the mindfulness, the non-interfering, non-judging mindfulness and being caught, back and forth, because the mind is changing every moment. But those moments are what's shifting the habit. That's what's shifting the pattern. And our whole practice is really more and more about you know, abandoning the reliance on experience to confirm us, to make us happy, and more and more on just looking at, exploring, and trusting this natural awareness in the mind. Awareness is already free. Awareness doesn't suffer. Awareness isn't stained by any experience that visits it. Zajan Sumedho said, I think I said this, awareness is the point that includes anything, anything that arises. At any of the six sense doors, at any moment, awareness can know it. And that's really, really our practice here. Well, I think I'd better end before I have a whole other thing on the other side of craving, but there's not really time. So thank you for your kind attention. Let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.